Well, welcome to my podcast. I'm sitting in a room just behind the castle today, and my guest is Bishop David of Basingstoke. Highclere has quite a close connection to the church. The remains of an Anglo-Saxon church are still very visible just behind the castle, and Highclere was in fact owned by the bishops of Winchester for 800 years. So soon after Geordie and I took over the reins of looking after Highclere, one of my first guests was in fact Bishop Michael of Winchester, and since then it's been a joy to welcome Bishop David and his wife Helen to come and eat and dine and spend evenings with us. So welcome, David, if I may call you that. It is so nice to see you here. Thank you for coming along today. Fiona, thank you. It's a, a joy to be here. I'm looking forward to this immensely. You probably may not have known the connections with the church. I mean, I'm sure you knew Highclere was owned by, by yourselves for some 800 years. But did you know how old the church was behind the castle? I had some idea that um, it went back that, that long because, of course, the, the church in this country... Winchester was one of the very first places the church got established and it you know it's part of the development of the nation of England um, and that's how, that's one of the reasons the Bishop of Winchester owned this place for 800 years. Apparently it was quite a good farm as well quite good arable land and <laughs> I think it was a good staging post. One of my favourite characters above all from history is William of Wickham who whose dates were 1324 to 1404, I quite like dates. But he built a palace here. I mean, I know it's duly created Downton Abbey, but there was a proper medieval Abbeycombe Palace here during the certainly the 14th century and the previous one, and then it began to be less used after William of Wickham. And he had beautiful gardens and pear trees and apple trees and presumably he grew herbs, and he had a wonderful chapel in the middle. And he actually enthroned Roger Walden as Archbishop of Canterbury here in 1397. So it must have been quite an amazing building. It is extraordinary. <laughs> We're sitting and eating where so many mm. men of the cloth and mm. people have eaten before us. I, I think it's very exciting that um, so much of the fabric of, of our nation has interwoven to the development of agriculture, the development of an economy, the development of faith at the heart of it all. And to some ways, it seems to me Highclere still aspires to embody all of that, uh, which is why I really love coming to see Vienna. It's, it, it always gets me thinking in fresh ways about how we relate the past to the present, and perhaps particularly at the moment, what's the ground of our hope for the future? Highclere has been a visible anchor and a, and a building of reassurance, and one which is much loved. And I'm always very careful to curate that and respect other people's love for a shared home. But equally well at the heart of that is people, it's hope, which is, I think, for me, where the church comes in. And, and it was with delight and joy that I began to ask many of the bishops around here to come and join to see how we could do things together mm. because I think making things real and making people laugh and bringing people out and creating hope and a sense of of being grounded which I think is your words can help our mental health as well as spiritual health I mean what are your feelings yes, about Fiona, that's what I love about you actually that you know so easily this could place could become a place of nostalgia I mean it's got it's got such an astonishingly rich history. You're almost standing on hallowed ground, even as you drive through the gates. You know, it really is quite extraordinary. But your genius, if I may say so, Fiona, is that 
you want the curiosity, you know, reignited. You want us to talk about uh, not just a sort of nostalgia to the past, but where are the building blocks as we go forward? We're recording this just at the tail end, I hope, of a pandemic that has affected the whole world, where the things we took for granted might actually not be quite there anymore. But then we find if we dig a bit deeper, we find community, family, watching out for other people. Kindness. Kindness, exactly. Uh, Hasn't that been amazing? I think I've, I've heard stories even around the villages around here of an unprecedented concern for people's neighbours. Early on in the, in the pandemic, people dropping notes through each other's doors. Is there anything I can help you with? Is there anything I can go and get? And actually, the building blocks of good community start with your next door neighbour. And sometimes in 21st century Western world, we, we don't even know the names of our neighbours. And this pandemic has caused us to, to start to ask deep questions afresh about who is my neighbour and how do I care for the people who are actually not very far away from me. Yeah, so it's the second commandment, love thy neighbour. Mm. And, and I think in this world which seems ever more fragile and troubled, we're wondering what, you know, before the pandemic, we've had the divisions caused by Brexit about our relationships with our neighbours. And then during this particular time, again, it's brought it forward again in a more local fashion. So it is really interesting and then helping give your neighbours courage Mm. and confidence to step out and welcoming people here. And what's interesting is the visitors who are coming now, the one thing they're remembering and writing about is the welcome given them by the guides. So I know that, well, I'm mad about the building, but, but not apart from the building. It's Louis, our butler or banqueting manager, leaping around offering them more cocktails or cups of tea, or, or Diana at the front door, making them feel welcome, or Paul McTaggart as they come in with Darren, you know, they wind down the windows and they're playing the Downton Abbey music. And uh, it, it's just that sense of welcome and fun and, and exactly. a little bit of happiness. Exactly. Um, hospitality is, I think, a, a sort of, is not an option. It's actually the heart of how we build community. And one of the biggest risks I think we've got at the moment is those who are isolated become actually quite badly vulnerable because they begin yeah. to see, see the world through too small a lens. But the moment we open our hearts, our homes, Highclere Castle, to other people, actually hospitality builds relationship and actually mitigates isolation. I, I've just... Parked in the car park and walked in, Fiona. And I mean, it's not a bright sunny day. It's it's quite a nice day. But people, people on every person's face, there was a sense of joy, sense of excitement about being here. I don't know if that's always the experience. Maybe it is always. Maybe that's the magical place. It's always the experience. But actually, I I was very sensitised today, as I walked through, that people people had a a, something in their step. Well, I think that I I hope that with all the team here, it's being about making you feel welcome. So when you've been a guest at our you know, supper table for the evening or playing our quiz games after it or whatever, you've kindly joined in, it's again that sense of welcoming and sitting. And Do you know the, what poem we read when George and I got married from one of the readings was? Could you guess? Well, it's one by George Herbert, which is one of my favourite poems, which is Love Bade Me Welcome. Yet my heart drew back. 
guilty of dust and sin. At the end of it, it's about, so we did sit and eat. And that beautiful poem by George Herbert, who I think is one of the most extraordinary poets of the English language. So there's that particular poem, which is about hospitality. And I wrote a book at home at Highclere because it, to my mind, it was the hospitality, it was welcoming people here. And allied to that, another of my favorite George Herbert poems is The Pulley, which is about when God at first made man, having a glass of blessing standing by. He poured on him, just to cut the poem, um, make it more brief. He poured on me all his blessings, but the one thing he didn't give us was rest. So if goodness should not lead us to his breast, weariness will lead us to his breast. So it's again mm. that restlessness and curiosity, which is not always good, but can be good, and then allied to the love made me welcome. It's an extraordinary cycle of poetry, which always sits with me through hard times. And he was a man, which I, I'm sure you know, who for whom life threw many brickbats at, if you like, in today's language. He, he had great hopes, and yet at the end, this man of, who hoped so much for himself through health and other chance was simply a parish priest, yet out of being simply a parish priest, he found peace through service. It's, it's, I took the funeral yesterday of a friend, actually, whose golden thread through her life was gratitude, always encouraged everyone else. But actually, as I got to know her better, I've rarely met anyone who suffered as much as she had. Early bereavement, lost her husband, leaving her with four children. Health problems almost unimaginable. And yet what she presented was gratitude and an appreciation. I mean, she taught me more about birdsong than anyone else has ever taught me because she, she could appreciate what was immediately in front of her. And, and I think that's a sort of George Herbert spirituality. And it's because there's a compulsion that welcomes us in that I think is, in its essence, God. But I also think with the pandemic through which I hope we're travelling and, mm. and well past the halfway point of our journey, that I think people's appreciation of the bird song, of the small details, and, and I have an Instagram account and I'm often posting birdsong or a little robin that's kind of joined me when I'm trying to do my yoga to try and, try and stretch myself out as I get ever older or um, a little flower or a bee or a butterfly has people have really picked up on it and this morning I was listening to, the, to some birds in some trees and I'm not sure it wasn't a song thrush it was so clear and so beautiful mm. that has been a joy and I, I think I think that has come to the fore and I so hope that we'll all remember to continue to appreciate that, even if we can travel more easily by car or by plane. Yes, I mean, if we've got the eyes to see and we allow our curiosity to, to sort of expand really, I wonder actually if our souls become healthy by not travelling very far, mm. by just appreciating what we've got here. Well, of course, Jane Austen was buried in Winchester Cathedral. Yes. And I think, you did you spend some time in Winchester before going to Basingstoke? Yes, I, I've been around 19 years, so, you know, <laughs> <laughs> So you're 19 years in Winchester and Basingstoke between the two. That's exactly right. Because yeah. I, I always think I love her novels because they're all about the small comments, the small detail. And, and they are such a success. Whenever there's a new Jane Austen film out, I'm off. <laughs> mm. I really enjoy it. And I want to reread yet again, actually, her novel Persuasion, which I haven't read for a while. But an amazing woman and a woman of Winchester Cathedral and of Hampshire. 
Yes, I mean, the beauty of the, of the recent celebrations is that I dedicated a number of statues of Jane Austen. And actually, if I can be slightly provocative for a moment, there are more statues of, the, of, of men called John in this country than there are of women in this country. Wow. And I think we've got to rewrite part of our history as we listen more carefully to who shaped it. So I'm delighted we're talking about Jane Austen. <laughs> I think before Winchester, you were out in Africa. Is that where you? Oh, some you some some long time ago. I grew up in East Africa. My father was a medical officer in, in East Africa. I went to school there, and then when I first started work, I worked as a teacher in Kenya. But actually, quite compelled to come and live in England in 1985, and have been here ever since. So, teacher by another guise. It's a share of stories, isn't it? <laughs> it's interesting. I'm a bishop in the church, so maybe I can, for a moment, just say that. Of course, for me, the greatest teacher who ever lived is Jesus. And I am utterly compelled, mm. still compelled by, his, by what, the stories he told, the things he did, and the way he entered into people's lives. Yesterday at the funeral of my friend, I found myself immersed in Jesus, the story of Jesus at the funeral of Lazarus. Uh, he doesn't provide any answers. You know, I want the answers uh, as I'm listening to the funeral, but as I'm reading the story, but actually what he did is he offered himself. He was there, present in that story. And that's where my curiosity, my spiritual curiosity remains. Uh, I've been ordained uh, over 30 years, but I'm still curious as to, you know, what does this story of Jesus? You talk about the timelessness of Highclere, and you're absolutely right. And the fact that the developments of the church in this country actually went alongside the development of the nation. But actually, we go further back to the foundation documents, to the original stories Jesus told. And they have this timeless ability to be reimagined into our own context. And that's the root of my hope in the future, that we've still got a story to discover and we do it together. And the more I, as I get older, some of the stories I learnt by heart as a child, mm they come back to resonate the whole time, the Sermon on the Mount mm. and the beauty of the lilies. Or, it's, it's, it is, there are amazing stories and you see greater depths. I think you sometimes learn them as a child, but as you grow older, you grow into yes. and live through yeah. the stories. Yeah. And I still hope that children will learn them off by heart because I think there's a value in the... I'm afraid I'm a huge fan of the James the Sixth version because I love the, I love the rhythms yes, of yes. the text and of yeah. the words and the beauty of the yeah, words. It yeah. was written with such beauty, not just as a as a document to communicate, but behind the document of the rhythm of the beauty of the words. So yes. that's what I will always choose to yeah. read, even if I'm given another reading. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can imagine. <laughs> And I don't really know, but I'm also church treasurer locally, which keeps me in a little bit. And we have the parish council meetings and inadvertently sometimes they remind me of the Vicar of Dibley or something from the Vicar of Dibley pops out, which has been such a popular programme again. Mm. I think to putting different lights on where the church is today. I mean, I'm sure that the Vicar of Dibley, like Downton Abbey, they are a fictional step away from mm. where it really is. But nevertheless, some of the characters in that are bring the village life of which the the parish council, the parochial council, sorry, is very much a part. And and it makes one think about the value of the church, the architecture, the building and the fabric mm. 
you need to look after it because you need it in times of trouble. So it's some of part of my thing is if, if you don't look after it now, where's it going to be when you need it? <laughs> it's fascinating what places matter to individuals and when they matter. I'm conscious here in the Highclere Parish Church that I've been with you on a number of occasions for services there. Actually, some of the greatest celebrations of the community have happened in that building. But also some of the most poignant moments of struggle have also been reflected upon in that building. I think for me, the real challenge is to ensure that the story of the Christian faith is there for every new generation. And, and the building is part of that. The King James Version, if you like, and you're absolutely right, I agree with you about uh, the well, power of the... I understand you also then need to translate it to yeah, make course. it up yeah. to date. But I, I just think having both there, they both have their politicians. I, I think we should give you the, a gift of the message version, which is probably the most sort of novel-like, almost uh, you know, exciting language just plain meaning of the text, and you read the dignity of the King James Version alongside an outrageously modern version. Fiona. <laughs> uh, I'd like to see what happens when those... Because actually, yes. isn't that actually what you're about in yep. High Clear? Yes. That, that you've got stuff where you're literally touching history, even by coming onto the estate. Mm. But actually, you're not in a museum. Mm. I mean, it's got museum no, no. elements, but you're not in a museum. No. You're in a living community. Yes. Where actually you're not afraid to address the issues that are about this year, this month, this generation. And I think that's the genius for me of the Christian gospel, that if, it, if, it's, if there's any authenticity about it, it translates into every culture and every generation. And it gives you the building blocks for how we should then live and how we should live in community with each other. Um, and what... What mitigates against despair? Despair is the one thing that is the most horrific human experience, the loss of hope. And uh, I think, you know, for all the advances of the 20th and 21st century, where we've mitigated risk in our health, we've almost pushed our mortality out of the door. This current pandemic has stripped away some of that security. It has. does that leave us in despair or does, do we fall into a much deeper hope that says, you know, there are some things that are greater than death, greater than life, that you and I can appropriate through the eyes and the gift of faith? I completely agree. I think it's made, made people find different ways of dealing with loneliness mm. or despairing moments. Mm. And I think it's acknowledging that we all perhaps feel despair, Mm -hmm. we all perhaps feel depression, but again, it's a moment in time. And I'm conscious when I'm replying to people in the social media world of today, just to say, this too will pass. You Mm -hmm. know, we will go through the other side. And in a sense, I think part of Christ's teaching is this too will pass and you will go through to the other side. And it's not always going to be like this, but you can make a better journey if you're not alone. I don't know if you remember Julian of Norwich, uh, you know, who, 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 that beautiful phrase, all will be well. Yeah. And, and she writes that in horrendous human circumstances. Mm. You know, it almost verges on the irrational, except I think it isn't irrational. It, you know, the gift of hope is that all will be well. It's not to say that we're living some sort of semi-fantasy that says, you know, oh, this is just a temporary trouble. There are some, there's a real price to pay to rebuild what we're about but all will be well and all will be well with high clear well thank you i <laughs> hope it will and, and i'm expecting that 
during this time, we're going to have to swim quite hard to survive the next two years. So it's not suddenly going to happen, but I've always thought that I don't know where the journey ends, but it's, it's the way you undertake the journey. And at school, we used to write these essays about the ends justified the means, which I have a huge problem with that because mm. it's not about the ends. That's not for us to say. I think it's how we travel along the journey and who we take with us and how kind we are and, and how we reach out and what we contribute. So it's not about us. So I think it's that balance which I find so interesting. And it's amazing how I think so many people feel the same. How we travel, I agree with you completely. The, the journey is the key. And actually, we need to reflect what we really think matters in how we travel that journey. I, I don't know, you've probably done this on the podcast before, and I may be treading into and you can edit this out, Fiona, but um, one of the unique things about having dinner in High Clear is you, you have this amazing welcome as you arrive. Sort of Large drink. Well, well, there is a large daiquiri often, and um, there's fascinating. You, you're quite careful as a host that you, you you choose a dynamic range of people to come and have dinner. But when you sit down for the meal during the first course, you turn to one side, and there are twelve. There are not often twenty-four people around the table, and you have one conversation with the person sitting on one side of you for the first course. And then you turn and have a second conversation with the person on the other side. It's probably how things were always done in these sort of houses. But do you know, it, it does mean you walk away knowing you've had a, some really deep conversations. Actually, it gets quite intense. You know, I've, <laughs> I've had some really deep conversations at a dinner table because there's no superficial sort of competition going on no. around the table. You're actually taking seriously the person you've been seated next to. And, and I found that a real gift. So, Fiona, thank you for that experience. Well, no, I, well, I thank you. And I love it when you come and say grace. It, sets, it, it makes me think about what dinner is and mm. the friends we're sharing it with and the, the rites of the Last Supper. So it leads me all through those thoughts immediately. And mm. none of them are, are, are you know, forced into my mind, but they just flow through. And it's, it's a wonderful sensation of sitting down. We have the huge... Van Dyke to one side and it's always been the question about who should we serve which is I don't know really you know it's my husband's family motto Uncshe Servere Anglo-Norman for only one will I serve which is a wonderful motto because it's really at the heart of so much history not just English history but then we're sitting in the dining room with you know King Charles I who was executed for his thought that he had the divine right of king or whether of course the divine right lay with God, <laughs> or whether he, it was channeled through the king, which is such an interesting way, I suppose, to start any conversation. And thank you. I think it's wonderful to get into proper conversation with people at dinner. Although sometimes, David, if I see you talking earnestly to someone outside before we go in, I rush in to try and swap people around. No. <laughs> and, or then afterwards we swap off. But, I didn't realise the choreography well, no, it's just got, got altered right to the <laughs> I suddenly think, oh my goodness, they've been chatting for 10 minutes. They're obviously completely into it. But it is fun, and I love mixing up people from different countries, different thought processes, and also to give the friends who come and stay, who live a little bit further than you do, a sense of a quiet night's peace and sleep and rest. And then you wake in the morning, and I think one of the greatest gifts is not the castle, but it's opening the shutters looking north to Oxford, 
mm. and just looking across this extraordinary Arcadia, which is, is God-given. Mm. And man's hand has certainly touched it. Mm. But I just think we're so lucky and it's such a privilege to live here. It's completely beautiful and I love the fact the roots are both spiritual as well as physical. Do you remember, David, when Mary Berry came to dinner? Yes, I do. You, you invited us for dinner and then a few days before we suddenly got this note that we'd be signing a consent document for a television company, <laughs> um, which was quite interesting. And would we really mind if we had to sign away all rights to our conversation? It was an exquisite evening. I think you'd chosen the guests quite carefully because the conversation was very gracious. And, but the chandeliers had disappeared because there were television lights all over the room in, in order to sort of provide maximum light for the dinner. And Mary Berry herself was such an, a gracious lady. Her conversation was, was beautiful. Wasn't she lovely? Well, it was the end of a programme we did, which was such a joy to make with her. And I do remember I wanted to ask some mutual friends for her because it's always interesting when you're being filmed at dinner and I think I had known all along actually David that I was going to film but I hadn't let you know till it was <laughs> too close for you to back out with your wonderful wife actually Alan Titchmarsh was another guest because Alan and yes. Mary knew he each was, other yeah. and it, it was broadcast as Mary Mary visits country houses and it still gets repeated so um, everyone sees so, you yes occasionally um <laughs> Occasionally when I'm taking a confirmation service or, or, or preaching somewhere, they'll say, we saw you at Mary Berry at Highclere. <laughs> you were so wonderful to take part. But again, it was a really lovely evening, actually. And I think we're about 14 of us, which is a lovely number to have dinner in that particular dining room and fit the TV crew around it. The food was delicious, but, <laughs> but I remember we, we had to eat it slightly slower than normal. Conversation is always takes precedence over the food normally but I think on this occasion because they were trying to film us eating and we were worried that our conversation might get broadcast but actually it's only the odd phrase that got into the program so it was really helpful. And there was a couple of my friends who'd had actually a couple of stiff cocktails before going into dinner and I think I'm not sure they were entirely in control over their conversation but they were trying so hard. Yes there was a poem in, in honour of Mary Berry. By oh yes that was Kit Hesketh Harvey which was hilarious I mean. And probably not printable though. Sad, it was completely printable right, obviously okay. it was in your presence but sadly <laughs> it wasn't included I've got it somewhere it was just wonderful David it, it was a very special evening I sort of think back and it has this warm glow mm. of like an evening sun no, over the whole yes. thing but I can't thank you you've, you've joined us at many wonderful occasions and actually I'm, I'm hoping I can ask you and the church to join us I'm going to do a history festival in October my first ever inaugural history festival I was going to do something for VE Day yes, I, was due to, I was due to come to that you were so actually now on my podcast I can invite you forwards so what I wanted to do was roll some of the VE Day celebration into the first day of the History Festival which is on October the 10th superb and I've got some wonderful speakers Kate Adie and Robert Harris and Colin Bell and a whole group of Concorde pilots who I thought would be so interesting and I've got some planes in the sky and actually what I wanted to do was think about VE Day with the speakers and create a small thank you celebration of what our ancestors went through for some five years and we are struggling to have our lives change for some five months and I thought gather together raise some money for different charities Messos of Frontier or perhaps part of the NHS or SAFA and say thank you I would love you to come to that, David. Fiona, I would love to be here. Thank you.
I'm always pleased to hear from you, so please leave a review and subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. You can also ask questions or make suggestions by emailing podcast at highclearcastle.co.uk.